Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, and the author of, most recently, The Swan Princess, published in April of this year and book three in my Legends of the Five Directions series. Because of the new book, today I'm reversing roles. Joan Schweigart, whom I interviewed in January about the last wife of Attila the Hun, has kindly agreed to ask me questions for a change. I look forward to the chance to give you, our listeners, a better sense of the person behind the microphone. The Swan Princess opens from the perspective of a character whom readers of The Golden Links, the first book in the series, will soon identify, although he is traveling under a different name. Pechenga, mentioned in the opening line, is located above the Arctic Circle, on the coast of the Barents Sea, along the border between Russia and Finland. Escape South of Pechenga, February 1536 Sleet stung his face. Brother Stefan tugged the rabbit-skin hat over his ears and turned up the collar of the worn fur coat. A gift to the monastery, no doubt, from some half-starved priest determined to secure prayers for his soul. Shivering, he squinted through ice-crusted eyelashes at an oval of red topped by a semicircle of bright blue. Against the white-gray Arctic landscape, the patch of colors sufficed to identify the lap herder guiding his rickety sleigh across the tundra. "'Can't that beast go faster?' Stefan kicked the front of the sleigh and chided himself for impatience, in vain. His demand for speed was irrational. He had secured permission for his journey. No one would follow him in this blizzard. He had nothing to fear, yet his whole body urged him to press on, beat the reindeer, or the driver, if necessary. Whatever would increase the distance between himself and that godforsaken excuse for a monastery. He'd wasted months there already. Getting out of the Arctic blast would be a blessing, but no hope of that for a few more weeks, unless this slug of a reindeer grew wings and took to the air. What a sight that would be! Off to one side, through the driving sleet, he saw a small hut raised on logs, two of its chicken feet buried up to the ankles in snow, the front two swept bare by the circling winds. It looked like the home of the witch Baba Yaga, terror of his nursery days. He shivered again, a knot from the cold. How could one know, dashing past in a reindeer-drawn sleigh, whether which dwelled there? And now I turn over the interviewer's mic to Joan. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for agreeing to interview me today. I'm looking forward to talking with you. I'm looking forward to talking with you, too, and it's great to be on this end of an interview with you. Um, I want to tell readers that I loved your book, and I love what you and the other founding members have been able to do through Five Directions Press, um, which we'll, we'll get to later. So you've mentioned that you've trained as a historian. Did you always want to write fiction, and, and what inspired you to make that switch? I actually never thought I would write fiction. I've always enjoyed reading fiction. I especially enjoyed reading historical fiction. But my intention was always to write nonfiction. So I've been a writer for a very long time. But a fiction writer, well, actually now it's also a very long time because it took me a great deal of time to figure out how to make that switch from from writing pure history to writing historical fiction. But uh, I sat down probably 20 years ago at this point, and wrote down a story that I had always imagined in my head. I'd been working out these scenes for a long time, and I finally got one exactly the way I wanted it. And so I thought, I'll write that down so I don't forget how it worked. And then it turned into a a very long novel, um, convoluted and uh, kind of rambling. And I went through many, many revisions of it, working in part with a friend who would read the the revisions and tell me what she thought needed fixing. And when I got to the end of it, I thought, you know, if I'm ever really going to do anything with this, I should write about what I know. And what I happen to know is medieval Russian history, which is pretty much unfamiliar to most of uh, the population in the United States and North America in general, and even in most of Europe. 
But it's a fascinating period. And so then I began trying to write these novels set in uh, 16th century Russia. My original idea was to have a mystery series that was set in 16th century Russia because uh, in that time, especially among the nobility, men and women occupied different spaces. And so I thought I would have this young couple who had to work together, uh, she among the women and he among the men, to figure out the answer to things. But uh, by the time I actually sat down and wrote it, it became a very different kind of story. Well, so how did you get interested in uh, in the first place in um, Russian, medieval Russian history? I mean, what brought you there? Ah, well, um, I went to high school in the 60s when the Defense Department was very worried about uh, the Cold War. And as a result, in my little high school in northern New Jersey, it was possible to take Russian. And I loved languages from the time I was a really small child, and I just thought this was so fascinating and exotic. And so I took Russian and discovered that it's actually a very difficult language if you're an English speaker. It's got very complicated grammar and the uh, the word stems are very different from English. And the one thing that everybody thinks is going to be difficult, the alphabet is actually a snap because it's a phonetic alphabet. So you just memorize it and then you're set. But um, when I went to college, I started taking classes in Russian civilization. And that's when I was hooked. And I just, I don't know why it is that I'm particularly attracted to the medieval period, uh, it's, but it's always been true with history. I just prefer pre-industrial Europe. And so I'm a, a specialist in 16th century, in what's called pre-Petran history, that is before Peter the Great, and also early modern Europe. Wow. So, so how did you take all that knowledge and go from being a novice writer to being a writer of historical fiction? Um, how does the craft, how do you craft a historical novel? I mean, you had all that knowledge to begin with. I think most people who are writing historical fiction kind of um, come to the history as, they're, as, they're, as they need it. <laughs> you already had it. Um, so tell me about the craft of putting it together. Yeah, for me, the research is the easy part. Uh, first off, I have this vast background knowledge um, of the period and how it works. And so all I really need to find are the details that fit into a particular story. And recently I discovered this fantastic book that kind of makes you wonder about how someone would do this, but it's 900 pages on the entire history of the uh, 14-year government, um, not even government, but the the 14-year period between the death of Vasily III and the um, coronation of Ivan the Terrible, which is exactly the period that I'm writing about. And so, but even before then, you know, I can read Russian. Uh, I can read, I mean, I can go on Wikipedia for very specific facts, but I can also read the Russian Wikipedia. And then, of course, I can read all of these these um, research books, and I own many of them uh, about the Russians and the Tatars in this period. And more important, I've got this enormous address book of Russian historians who know more than I do about specific things. So in a pinch, I just email them and I say, you know, uh, what was the attitude towards dogs or something like that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so oh, that's wonderful. And then the other part of that is because I've spent, you know, 40 years going to cocktail parties and watch people's gla- eyes glaze over. When I tell them what I do, I don't have the information dump problem. I feel, if anything, I have the opposite problem. I use my fellow writers to say, huh? (laughs) Why are they doing that? (laughs) And then I know I have to figure out a way to explain it. Um, But I really think, maybe it's because of my background as a teacher, I really think that the point of a historical novel is to make the subject interesting enough that if people want to know more about it, they will go and look it up. And so that's part of why I write these novels, because there's this fantastic period. And um, I said it in specifically in the 1530s, because outside of my field, it's not generally known. But Ivan the Terrible came to the throne at the age of three. His father had um, married early in life or relatively early in life um, and been married for 25 years without having children. And so he manufactured a divorce uh, 
and his wife suddenly discovered an urge to go into a convent so that he was able to divorce her. She went screaming and kicking, uh, but she went. And he remarried when he was in his early 50s, I think, to a girl of probably 16. And she did eventually have, she didn't have kids for about, uh, I think, five years after the marriage. And then Ivan was born and then his younger brother was born. And by that time, his father was 56 and he died. And so that's a very difficult period for any country to have a ruler on the throne. And his mother was not officially the regent because they didn't have the concept of regency, but she managed uh, to get herself into a position of power. But the whole five years, she died when she was probably 28. uh, And there's suspicion that she died of poison. And that's kind of where my series ends. But in that whole period, there was a great deal of unrest and foreign powers were trying to attack the country and the um, noble clans were fighting for precedence because the way that the system was set up was that you achieved a position of power, but the ultimate position of power was to marry your daughter to the Grand Prince, who would later be a czar, but at this point he's still called the Grand Prince. And you couldn't do that with a three-year-old in Russia. Uh, sometimes it was done in the West, but the Orthodox Church was very stern about maintaining those at least some semblance of allegiance to the rules about when you could marry and so the whole system gradually disintegrated until very close to the time when he became uh, Ivan became old enough to rule so I took that information and that's my backdrop because there's so much that you can do with it there's so many of the things that constrain um Modern people who are writing about modern subjects just aren't there. You know, there's no real police force. There's no, um, the rules are very different. Uh, you can get away with all kinds of stuff. I mean, there are the, the system has its own rules, of course, but they're um, they're based around marriage politics and honor and this kind of thing. And in addition to that, the other factor that really operates in these series is that Russia was ruled for 250 years by the descendants of Genghis Khan. And in this period, in the 1530s, it is now um, really coming out of that, uh, and it's resurgent. Whereas the the um, the Tatar Khanates, uh, that is these um, these successor states to the Mongol Empire, are disintegrating. And right then, in the 1530s, the two sides are more or less in a balance. And so my series is about the interaction between Russia and the Tatar states uh, to its south and east. And the problematic part for me was actually learning how to turn that into a novel, and most specifically, learning how to make what I knew specific to characters, to, you know, to, to develop characters, to understand the concept of character change, and especially to get inside people's heads because as historians, that's the one thing we really can't do. Even a diary is, right. you know, is written for an, an internal audience. You know, it's, it's written for a reader and, and it's crafted to some degree. A letter is always crafted to some degree. So we're discouraged from making assumptions about how people think. And well, so that, that, that was the hard part for me. That's where I really needed to work with other writers and with, um, at one point, a book doctor who would say to me, you know, what is this person thinking now? Right. Well, I, I think that you, um, you came to kind of a perfect balance. When I, I have to tell you, when I first um, read your book, I, I was afraid I would feel threatened by a history that I really had no knowledge of. Um, but I felt like the balance was so good between historical intrigue and narrative, of, you know, and the characters and their motivations and so forth. And um, it was, I was very, really impressed. So you've done a great job in, um, you know, transforming what you know into this other kind of animal. Um, so Thank you. Have, you. That's really good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. I enjoyed it very much. Um, so you've had... you. You've had six books published to this point. Is that correct? That is correct. And three of them are part of the series. Yes. Okay, and that's the last three. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, about uh, the relationship to one another? The relationship of the, the six books? 
No, of the three books. Of, of the, the three last books. three books in, in the series. I, I assume that the series ends with the third book, um, but I'm not sure. Um, um, no, actually, <laughs> it's it's five books. Um, the series oh, okay. is called Legends of the Five Directions, and so there are five books, one for each of the five directions. And um, I think, actually, that there will probably be a like a spin-off series because there are characters whose stories I wanted to tell, but if I were to include them in the five books the whole thing would become way too complicated. Uh, one of the other things I had to learn is that a novel, the basic story of a novel is very simple and that, you know, it's girl meets boy, girl loses boy. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and when it, what makes it novel length is all of the work that you put into creating the setting and the characters and the the um, specific details of the plot through which the characters are revealed and all of that kind of thing. And by the time you do that, all of a sudden you're looking at 300 or 400 pages. And so I, when I initially started, I had all of these grand ideas about what I was going to put in this book or that book, and then I would have to go through and strip them out. So the basic uh, plan of the series is that in the very first book, which is The Golden Lynx, we meet the heroine, Nassan, uh, who is... 16 years old. She's the daughter of a Tatar Khan, which puts her in the very top rank, both of her society and of Russian society. The, uh, Ru- the Russian word for Khan is Tsar. And although the, the word Tsar itself comes from Caesar, it's from the Byzantine emperors, it was used, it, it meant that the Khans were actually perceived as being of higher rank than the Russian royal family. And in this period, it's not an accident that Ivan the Terrible gets himself crowned as Tsar. It's, it's a declaration that he now considers himself to be the equal of the Tatar Khans. And so she is, um, in our language, she's a tomboy. She, she's mm-hmm. an idealist. Um, she's literate, which often surprises people. Uh, one of the things I really did have to research was the Tatar world, which I knew much less about than the Russians. And what I realized is that although we think of them as nomads and even barbarians, in fact, they were very much connected into the great civilizations of the Silk Road, especially Persian civilization, but also the Chinese uh, through the Mongols and uh, the Indians are also the, you know, the Mughal Empire is actually an offshoot of the Tatars as well. And so among the, of course, the, you know, the regular guys who were out there herding sheep, they were no more educated than you would expect. But the nobility often spoke multiple languages and they learned to read and write. Uh, They were supposed to be able to read the Quran, for example. And um, so one of the things that Nassan has in her collection of books is this book, which actually exists. It's, I'm not sure the pronunciation, I think it's Dede Korkut. It's a collection of hero tales of the Turkic people from the ninth century. And many of the um, quote-unquote heroes are women because the the Turkic tribes had this ongoing legend which dates back to the Amazons of women warriors and women who would dress in men's clothes and go out to save their brothers or their husbands. I mean, they weren't divorced of, of what were considered by the standards of the time to be normal female life. Uh, But they would go out and, you know, kill 600 warriors to save the man they loved and this kind of thing. And that is what Nassan wants to be. And unfortunately for her, her mother has a very different view. (laughs) (laughs) They started out, Nassan was raised as a nomad, so she knows how to uh, wield a bow and um, fight with sword. And of course, she can ride anything that can move. But uh, and her mother was actually also raised um, as in um, among the Crimean Tatars, who were partly settled and partly nomadic. But now her family is living in Kasimov, which is a town that was actually Russian uh, by origin, but had for the last uh, since 1462 or something like that had been given to a variety of Tatar Khans uh, and was being used by the Russians as a way of controlling politics on the steppe. And so her father, her uncle, all of her family is is uh, made up except for her two uncles who um, are 
actual historical characters. And the one who was in charge of Kasimov was under house arrest at that time um, because he'd been messing around with um, politics in Kazan and the Russians didn't want him to be doing that. So uh, the the conceit of the story is that uh, Nassan's father is temporarily in charge of Kasimov. And he and his family have managed to get into a blood feud with um, a Russian family, which is actually kind of improbable because you'd have to be a totally insane Russian to attack a Tatar Khan, as was pointed out to me. But on the other hand, the guy who's doing it is kind of insane, and so it shows how out of it he is. And that's the basis of the story. To solve this feud, um, Nassan is married off to a Russian family, and she is forced to convert to Christianity from Islam. And she ends up in this household where she doesn't know the customs, she doesn't know the language, and she has to figure out how to cope. Okay, so you've kind of brought us through the series. Um, well, that's the she, first she's book. She's the protagonist yeah. in each of the books. Okay. She is not uh, the main. Have... No, she's not the main protagonist in every book. She is the. She is the center of the series. She's the protagonist of the first book and the third book, and she plays a role in every book. But the second book, The Winged Horse, actually features her older brother. Oh, and, okay. And she and her. Who we and meet Nassan, again in the, in the third book. Yes, exactly. Um, right. Right. Nasana and Daniil, uh, her husband, are part of the subplot in the second book, but they are not the main characters. Right. Oh, it's really fascinating. It's like a parallel world. <laughs> I can imagine for you, you must dream about it at night because you know so much about it, and um, you're with these characters from one book to another. Um, so, so let's go back to Five Directions Press. So you've got you you've got a series of books that are going to um, have as their theme a direction. First of all, what are five directions? I thought there were four directions. So tell us about that and a little bit about how Five Directions Press came to be. Okay, so the directions themselves, um, in the West we do have only four directions, but in Chinese cosmology, which is then filtered through the Mongols and the Tatars and the Turks, there is uh, the center is an independent, um, it's not really a direction, but it's, it's the point where the four cardinal directions come together. And so the legends of the five directions play on that notion, and each book has a direction associated with it. So the Golden Links is west, because Russia is to the west of the Tatar lands. Um, the, second, the winged horse is east, because it takes place mostly in Kazan and to the lands to the south of it. Uh, southeast, um, the Swan Princess, which we're going to get to, is north, and it takes place mostly to the north of Moscow. The Vermilion Bird, which is the next book in the series, is south, and the last book is will be called The Shattered Drum, and it will be center. And there, the center is more um, an emotional state than anything else. But in all of the books, really, the directions are just indications. So they kind of set the emotional tone of the book because in, in this cosmology, each direction is associated with a color and with an animal and with an element. So the West is Earth um, and is associated with white, uh, the white tiger specifically, but they don't have any white tigers in Russia proper, especially in that period. So I made it a link <coughs> And uh, the East is associated with the horse or also with the blue dragon um, and with air. Uh, so it's about change, uh, whereas the first book is about grounding. And then the North is associated with water and actually with the black turtle, but also with swans. And swans were more appropriate for my story, so I picked that. And then the South is obviously associated with passion and fire. And then the center is harmony. Uh, and it's... It's the reason that China is called the Middle Kingdom because it's it's supposed to be the center of everything that happens. So, oh, I love it. It's it's kind of like you have a frame, um, a, a really uh, strong frame for each story, and then the frames fit into another frame, a larger frame. So it really gives you kind of a lot of direction. Um, and, and so, tell us about Five Directions Press. How did that come to be, and what was your part in it? <laughs> Well, Five Directions Press is named after the books uh, because we really like this idea 
of um, getting harmony out of the different directions. And so when we started, we, um, I, the, the really crucial part for me in making the transition from history to writing fiction as well as history was finding my writing group. And in 2008, I connected with, um, initially there were four of us, um, and the others, Jana Zalszewski moved after the first year or so, and she is now working alone. But uh, Ariadne Apostolou and Courtney J. Hall have been in the group with me from the beginning. And so that's how I really learned to write, was from getting comments from them. And so what happened was we got to 2012 and I had a book finished and um, Ariadne had one that was also finished, although she spent some time revising it afterwards. So it didn't actually come out until a year later. And I had sent the Golden Links around. I had sent my previous novel, the not exactly Scarlet Pimpernel, around as well and gotten to the point where people claimed that they really liked it, but it just wasn't the one that they wanted to take on. And I got very positive reviews also for The Golden Links. But again, people said, you know, I love this book, but I don't know who I'd sell it to. And they they just thought that nobody would be interested in 1530s Russia, which I disagree with. But in any case, that's that, that was the reaction I was getting. And so the three of us sat down one day and I said to them, look, you know, I spent 20 years in academic publishing at that point. And I own every version of InDesign that's ever been made. I've <laughs> been copy editing all these years. Um, Courtney is a cover designer, a graphics de- designer. And Ariane had worked with the card program at UNICEF. She's an art historian by training. And so, and she's also the one who can spot a story flaw at 100 paces. She's amazing. She just, she goes through this thing and she says, this character is not working for this reason. So we said, you know, we could do this, you know, rather than self-publishing was really starting to take off in 2011, 2012. And another friend of mine had done, had put out her memoir, uh, which she also republished with us because I typeset it for her, but she now has a new edition. So she's gone off on her own. And we just thought, well, we could set up, you know, rather than each person doing it on her own and having to do everything on her own, we could set up our own press. But because we were friends, we didn't want to have any money exchanging hands. We didn't want to have, you know, your book selling more than mine or, um, you know, I'm putting in money and I'm not getting anything back for it, you know, any of that stuff. So we said, we'll make it a co-op and we'll just exchange work. And so that's where Five Directions Press got started. And we were writing very different, well, Actually, Courtney and I were both doing historical fiction, although she's now doing a series of contemporary romances. But um, Ariane's book was very much um, a modern memoir by a woman who in middle life remakes her life to make herself happier. It's called Seeking Sophia, and it's a really lovely book about international adoption and um, moving yourself to Greece and um, dealing with a life-threatening illness and all of that kind of thing. And Courtney's was uh, about Tudor fiction, which is very popular, except hers is not about Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn or anything like that, but about the last days of Mary Tudor's reign. And so for, from 2012 until this time last year, we were just the three of us. And then we met a woman um, named Gloria, who has a business background, which is the one thing that none of us had. So she can come in and say things like, do you have a marketing plan? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, do you know who to contact? No. <laughs> Are you actually planning on selling these things? Well, we'd love to, but it's so much more fun to write them. So, <laughs> so then we became four again, and she may she's working on writing something, but she hasn't produced anything yet. And then within... Um, just in the last three months, we have added three new writers, which is very exciting. And one of them is you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, um, I, I want to mention, because I interviewed you back in January, that Bookshop Editions, which published The Last Wife of Attila the Hun, went out of business at the end of May. And so uh, Five Directions Press is republishing uh, the Last Wife of Attila the Hun. The Kindle version is already available, and the print version will be available in a couple of days, at which point 
we're hoping to persuade Amazon.com and CreateSpace to merge all of the editions so that all of the reviews are transferred and people know where to find it. Uh, so people who go to the interview site uh, should not click on the book trope link um, for the book. You can go through Amazon, but if the book is still not available, know that it will be soon. And you can also find us and the book at uh, HTTP uh, com. That's one word. That's Five Directions Press. And you'll see the splashy new cover that Courtney designed and all of that stuff. Um, but we were very happy and you're doing wonderful things for us in the media department. As is um, Gabriel Mathieu, uh, who is in, lives in Switzerland and is doing historical fantasy, uh, set in the 1950s in Switzerland and Germany. And the last new one is uh, Denise Steele, who has written a contemporary novel uh, set partly in Scotland and partly in, well, actually entirely in Scotland in the 1970s and then in the present day, which she is currently revising uh, for later this year. I love the concept of... um a co-op press, and I really think that it's going to be a, a, a really big trend because it fits uh, the need for today's publishing world, where you know Amazon is kind of the center of the universe, and um, uh, bookstores are not doing what they used to be able to do, unfortunately. But everything has changed, and in order to keep up with the changes, you really have to have something that works. And because you you happen to have. Um, people who really know what they're doing with layout, with cover design, with editing, with proofing, and so forth, from what I've seen, all of your books go out virtually perfect. And and so you can say that in, a, in some sense you're self-publishing. Everybody in the co-op is self-publishing. But because of everybody bringing other talents to the table, the product is not what people like people would usually think of as a self-published product. So... Um, it, it's really a big difference, and um, I'm happy to be working with you. Um, so tell us a little bit more, so, uh, since we really didn't really touch that much on the Swan Princess. We kind of talked about the series altogether. Can we just talk about the Swan Princess a little bit before we end things? And I really, really, <clears throat> I'd like to know what what you think that readers will take away from the Swan Princess, and um, and, and then the series as a whole. Well, That's a lot. <laughs> no, sure. Um, yes, the second book, as I mentioned, is set primarily on the steppe. And it's entirely among the Tatars because I really wanted to explore their culture and actually their cultures because the um, there's a big difference between, at least in this period, between the nomadic Tatars on the steppe uh, who are still living as their ancestors were living probably 2,000 years ago, and the uh, the Tatars in the city, and I used Kazan because that is the this, the big city in to the east of Russia that was already under siege in the 1530s and is eventually conquered by the Russians in 1552. And they are living in an area that has been Muslim since the 10th century and in this very ancient culture that survived the Mongol invasion, and it's very sophisticated and very... Um, different from from the the culture of the steppe, which has its own laws and its own culture, uh, but is much more animist and much more um, um, focused on herding and, and just the, you know, the sort of subsistence life of the nomadic herder. And then this was an absolute coincidence, but I think, I'm trying to remember, I put, I put Wayne Towers out in, uh, or, Five Directions Press put Wayne Towers out in, 20, in June 2014, three months after Vladimir Putin decided to annex Crimea, because a big thing in the book is this particular horde is trying to figure out whether it wants to ally itself with Crimea or with Russia, indirectly through the person that it picks, um, one of whom, one of the candidates is Nassan's older brother, and the other one is... Um, um, a separate character, and I think I want to let people read it because discovering who he is is part of the plot. Um, so I won't say specifically uh, who he is, although I think maybe on the back of the book it indicates uh, that that he is a, uh, a rival candidate. Anyway, so that brings us to Swan Princess. Swan Princess is much more tightly linked into uh, the Golden Links. And so whereas you could read... The Winged Horse, without really having read The Golden Links, and the only 
possible point of confusion is when Nasan and Daniel suddenly appear in chapter seven. And if you have no idea who they are, you may be wondering. But but the two stories are largely independent. And the the Swan Princess is the place where they start to come together. And at the beginning of the Swan Princess, it's two years after um, the events of the Golden Lynx. And Nasan is now approaching her 18th birthday. And she's been married for two years. And she... We find out in the very first chapter that she has miscarried a child. And her mother-in-law, who is very um, orthodox with a small O, um, as well as orthodox with a, big, uh, with a capital O, she is, um, she believes that the reason that, that Nassan has miscarried is because she has sinned. And... So Nassan has no sympathy uh, in this household. She feels very cut off um, because her husband has been sent off to war. Um, the one of the, as I mentioned, one of the the um, consequences of uh, the terrible coming to the throne when he was three is that the first thing that happened is that the combined uh, Commonwealth of Poland and Lithuania decided to attack Russia. And so there's this almost ridiculously small under-researched war called the Stardew War that runs from 1534 until 1537. And uh, during it, all the members of the elite, um, I mean, all male members of the elite served in the army from 15 to death or incapacitation. And so um, Nassan's husband, who's a young hotshot, military man is definitely not going to sit this one out and he has been sent off. And Nassan believes that he blames her for the loss of her child, uh, their child, because her mother, uh, his mother blames her. And so the, one of the differences between Nassan and Daniel is that she can read and write and he can't because in this early 16th century, most Russian nobles had clerks to do their work. And so this is one of the things that you can do if you're writing about the 16th century in general and 16th century Russia in particular, is that people can just disappear for months at a time and they don't think to write letters because nobody does. And occasionally he sends a messenger saying, you know, I need shirts or something. But it just never occurs to him as a person who doesn't read and write that someone who does read and write would be counting on him to send letters. And of course, Nassan is accustomed in her own family to having couriers going back and forth all the time. Her mother is the center of of all of the um, the menfolk. And so she's very upset about this. And she's also, she's done her best to be a good wife, but she's living in an environment where uh, women are just supposed to, li- literally elite women are not supposed to leave their household compounds unless they go to church or to visit female relatives or once in a while to attend a noble or royal wedding. And for all other, everything else that they do is done within the house. And if um, if the husband brings in guests, they may be brought in to present, you know, for a momentary presentation. And that's a great honor. And the rest of the time, they live alone. And there is no, there's no scope for Nassan's talents. Um, this is one of the reasons I made her a Tatar in the first place, because Russian women were supposed to sit around and embroider. And she is just doesn't do that well. So she's... She's miserable. She doesn't completely understand at the beginning why she's miserable. And she um, she doesn't really know how to get out of it. She's She doesn't she feel that she can talk to her husband because she doesn't trust him. Um, she doesn't know what's happening with him. And she's got this mean sister-in-law, uh, Maria, who's giving her grief all the time. And her mother-in-law is not unkind, but she just sees Nassan, uh, she, she doesn't have any respect for Tatar culture, and so she sees Nassan as a kind of um, clueless girl who just wants to read books and doesn't know about her responsibilities. And her mother-in-law is one of these people who is actually perfectly constituted for this culture. And so she is, in our present-day world, she would be running a corporation. She's got 200 slaves, um, because it's a slave-owning culture, uh, who are at her beck and call every minute. 
and she sends them hither and yon. And she's, she's actually, for all that she is conventional in her thinking, she is definitely not what we think of as a conventional um, woman in terms of what she does. I mean, she, she's definitely not a shrinking violet in any way. So um, that is going along as it is when um, Nassan's older brother comes into Moscow chasing this person who he has already defeated once, but who has sort of circled back and given him more grief. Uh, this is the fellow candidate from book two. And uh, he introduces, uh, all of the stories have a political plot in the background. Um, the Swan Princess has the least of all but it it does have this this underlying political plot, which is going to grow into the the main plot of books four and five. And so, oh, I'm sorry, I've mentioned. I'm. <laughs> you think I don't? I've written this thing years ago. The the, the crucial other point <laughs> is that although um, Nassan's mother-in-law is has been running the household, she now has heart trouble, and. One of the things Nassan has been studying is medicine, and her, but her medical ideas are, you know, bizarre and foreign and can't be considered. And so her mother-in-law decides that she's going to, like a good woman, she's going to go to uh, on a pilgrimage to a northern monastery, Ferrapontova Monastery, which is 400 miles northwest of, Mon- of uh, Moscow, and happens to be the area where she grew up. And Nassan thinks this is completely crazy. I mean, here's a heart patient who wants to get in a, um, they're going to send her by boat um, because that's supposedly going to be easier on her than than racketing over um, roads. And so, uh, but, you know, it's going to take probably six weeks to get there by boat. And Nassan is not looking forward to spending six weeks on a boat with her mean sister-in-law and her uh, carping mother-in-law and and so her brother shows up and says, look, and she, she takes the, this advantage to say, look, I could help you. And he says, yes, you could help us because he realizes that this is not a good situation. And so he sets it up with her mother-in-law that um, Nassan can, he's, he's going to give her a, a Tatar escort and Nassan gets to ride to Ferrapontovo, which will take, you know, a third of as long as going by boat, especially with Tatars because they ride all day. And um, and so this is her her gateway to freedom, except that as she gets there, this bad guy whom we encounter in the introduction is there waiting for her because he and I mentioned this in a previous interview, so it's not giving away a plot spoiler. But I discovered this fantastic. This is why one of the things I love about the historical research is that for a novel, it really opens up possibilities that you wouldn't otherwise consider. And so I wanted to involve this guy from the first book because I, Nassan's story is very um, flat at the beginning. It's just this domestic details. And so uh, her husband's off at war. That's a little bit scary. But And so we do see some of the, the novel from his point of view. But I wanted there to be a real um, threat. And I came up with this idea of having the bad guy escape from the monastery where he's been sent. And... Then, so I was researching this monastery and I discovered this amazing story about the guy who established the monastery in the first place in 1533. It's as far up as you can go without falling into the Arctic Ocean. It is a ridiculously northern place. And he decided to establish a monastery there. He had to, you know, out of, out of piety. But it turns out, and I don't know if the story is true, but it's a great story, that he was supposedly abandoned in his first life. And he had been a bandit throughout the northern woods, and he was notorious, and his name was Mitchell Fun, and, and there are all these tales about him and how he ran off with a boyar's daughter, and then he, um, uh, they didn't marry, of course, because she had been supposed to marry someone else, and but he, she lived with him as his bandit queen, and he loved her dearly, and, and he was just this notorious ruffian, and one day they captured this young man, and he was about to kill the young man and she pleaded for the young man's life. And so he killed them both because he decided that he, he just was overcome by a fit of jealousy and decided that the only reason that she would plead for this young man was because she was in love with him. And then he spent the next 10 years wandering the woods, repenting 
And, uh, and then after doing that, he went to um, the um, Monastery of Sorrows of the White Lake in Biela Ozora, which is already pretty far north. And that wasn't um, stringent enough for him. So he went out as a hermit into the woods. And then finally, he founded this monastery on the shores of the, uh, the Barents Sea. And he lived and there. <clears throat> the Barents Sea is where the, um, the submarine Kursk went down. It's, it's, it's north of Finland. It's, it's, that's what I'm saying. It's as, as far up as if you can think of a map, if you can think of that top coast of Scandinavia, it's almost at the tip. It's, it's so far north. And so that is where my villain had been sent at the end of the Golden Links. And so the, the novel opens with him escaping. And then I thought, well, what can I do with him? I was originally going to have this whole different plot. And then I thought, no, he should become a bandit chief. He would be absolutely perfect for it. It's his personality. Oh, he was. He was scary. <laughs> <laughs> he was very scary. I remember him well from the book. Um, um. So he ambushes Nassan, and that's where the story really takes off. It's, it's about her, her self-discovery of her overcoming, uh, finding a place for herself within this, this larger culture so that she doesn't absolutely um, um, overwhelm it. You know, she doesn't absolutely abandon it. She can't just set off on her own. But she finds a way to live within it. And, and that's, there are three things, really, that I want people to take away from this series as a whole. One is that history is fun. And I say that because I remember myself when I was taught history in school, it was very boring. And it was all, maybe it's improved since then, this was a long time ago, but, you know, it was all about the four causes of the Civil War. And it was all presented as though it were very cut and dried. And it was when I got to college that I realized that real historians don't operate like that. You know, they argue about the four causes of the Civil War. They, um, they each person comes up with their own interpretation, and it's it's just much more fun than the kind of stuff you get when you're in elementary school and even high school. And I think if you read, that's what people get from historical fiction is because it's all very personal and it's made very. It all comes very much alive, and it's you know it's like a novel is full of trouble and grief and anguish, and so which is usually resolved at the end, and so it's fun. So that's the first point. Right. Um, right. The second point is that Russia is a fascinating place. I I don't know that I would ever want to live there, but I would really love people to get beyond the sort of Cold War monster. Um, image which Putin is doing so much now to revive. I mean, that's good for our field because when the State Department starts to get worried about Russia again, then it wants to put money into people learning Russian and learning about Russia. But Russia itself is, it's been around for a thousand years and it's much older than the United States. It's got this long history. It's been, you know, it's an enormous country that is just as diverse or even more diverse than the, um, the United States. And it's got, I think, 200 nationalities, all which speak different languages. It's got multiple religions. And it's just a very complex and rich place. And it's really, if you're going to read fiction about it, it is tailor-made for fiction. It's, you know, one story after another that you really just couldn't make up. And then the third thing that's really interesting to me is the lives of women in the past. And that's really what... I mean, all of my books are about women because that's what I know. Um, but particularly the Russian books are really about how all of these different women find a way to live within this very restrictive culture. And some of them just kind of, they ignore it as much as possible. That's sort of what Nassan does, although as she grows up, she has to find a way to, to live within it. Um, some of them have made their peace with it, like her mother. Uh, some of them are naturally suited to it, like Natalia, Nassan's uh, mother-in-law. Some of them, the next book is about Maria, and Maria is there because she's the person who doesn't fit, uh, who really has a hard time with it. She's a beautiful embroiderer, and that's really about the only way that it works for her. She, and I wanted to show that because women weren't educated in Russia in that period, and 
they didn't, you know, they had, they lived, elite women especially lived very restricted lives, but, you know, poor women were just, um, they were just trying to survive. Uh, so Maria in our world would be a high-powered lawyer, or she might be Hillary Clinton, a politician. <laughs> well, that's what I love is that the, the women in your book, the, the, what you're saying about women um, has ramifications in today's world, um, too, because even though the restrictions are not quite the same, um, there are restrictions. And so it's, it's fascinating to me to see these women growing and changing. Um, I'm, I'm very anxious to see what happens with Maria in the next book, because I, I wondered a lot about her. Um, yeah, she's got a lot of growing up to do. That's I. When I finished the Winged Horse, I was so looking forward to starting that book, and now I've been I've spent the last two years with Nasana Daniel again. It took me a long time to get back into their way of thinking, and now I have to rediscover what it was that I wanted to do with that book. But yeah, I'm really going to have fun writing it because if anybody needs to be put through the ringer, Maria does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to be great. So. Okay. Well, it's been really, really great talking to you, and I appreciate having the chance to sit in the interviewer's chair. And um, your writing is great. Five Directions Press is great, and it's all good. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to interview me. I had such a good time. I was so nervous at the beginning, despite all of the times that I've done this to other people. And uh, your questions were wonderful. I really enjoyed them. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie. And today I've been talking with Joan Schweigert about my novel, The Swan Princess. You can find out more about this series and my other books at www.cplesley.com. And as I mentioned earlier, to see all the Five Directions Press titles, go to www.fivedirectionspress.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. Follow my blog at blog.cplesley.com, where every Friday I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Since January 2016, I have added blog posts about books sent to me that for one reason or another don't fit into my interview schedule. So the blog is becoming an extension of this channel. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.